playing. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, first chapter division, if you will. We are looking at the experience of obedience or disobedience, however you want to look at it, the book of Jonah. And today we want to talk about a chastisement revival, something that took place because of one of God's children being chastened. As you're turning there, Jonah chapter 1, let me remind you out in the lobby we have some voter guides, and if you haven't already voted, some of you have already voted, we've already voted, but these are just simply guides that tell you about the main issues uh, that and where these candidates stand on those issues, and especially the Christian issues, and uh, it's not an endorsement of anybody, but as you look at it, you can make up your mind about who you should vote for. And I don't think we ought to vote independent or Republican or Democrat or party or whatever. We ought to vote principle, uh, Bible principle. How many of you agree with that? Say amen real loud. All right, good. But anyway, we make these available to you, and uh, you can, as I said to somebody yesterday, if you have one good eye in roadwalking sense, you can figure this out. All right? So pick some of those up. Then the Bible conference, pick some of these up and take them with you and, and uh, put them up where they let you put them up. There's some larger ones. These are where you can just pass them out to people about our Bible conference. And I hope you'll plan to be here every night for that. It's sort of a revival, a mini revival. We call it a Bible conference. But we have two great speakers that are coming in. You'll be blessed by them, Jason Gaddis. He's pastor of Southwest Baptist Church in Oklahoma City and very involved with Heartland College. Uh, we have a student there. And then we have Joe Arthur. Uh, Joe speaks at a lot of conferences, sort of the Lord, so on and so forth. And we're looking forward to having both of them. So take some of these and by all means be praying that God will bless the conference. Why in the world are we having it? We're having it because we want you to invite friends to come that are unsaved so they might get saved, and we're having it so that we can be edified and helped. And uh, so invite some folks, and brothers and sisters in Christ may not even be members of our church. Uh, invite them to come over, and they'll be blessed, and uh, that'll give them an opportunity to grow in the Lord. All right, Jonah chapter 1, and let me read through, verses, uh, through verse 16, starting with verse 11, then we'll make some comments about these verses and see if you can figure out where there's a, a chastisement revival that's involved in this. Then said they unto him, beginning with verse 11, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not, upon, uh, lay, lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. And so we see that uh, sort of a revival begins here, not only later in Nineveh, but in the heart of Jonah as God is getting him right. But then we'll see in the people that were the mariners, the guys and the prisoners too in the boat, that they began to have a change of heart because of what God was doing. You know, a lot of times revival in our lives starts with trials. We have revivals sometimes during the time of trials. Jonathan Edwards pointed to the death, as he was talking about revival, to the death of a prominent woman as the beginning of what we would know as the Great Awakening. And that prominent woman's death brought people's focus in a certain way that it had something to do with springboarding that revival. And then the famous prayer meeting revival, as it was called, the middle 1800s, this was spurred on by a financial crisis that was there during that time. And God used that trial, that financial crisis, to help bring revival. William Carey gained support following a fire. A fire destroyed all of the printing press that he had in much of his early translation work, and because of that, God took that trial and used it, and revival uh, came in his own life and that ministry during that particular time. So we can see that troubles and trials and difficulties can have an impact on people's lives to bring them to a place of revival. First of all, we want to look at a sobered reverence, a sobered reverence. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. This was a very sobering experience to them. And they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. The storm that had come upon them was something that cause them to really, really be afraid. And they are suddenly interested in the Lord. Why were they suddenly interested in spiritual things? They weren't talking like that before. We'll look back on that. But here they had a fearful conversation. Verse 9, go back to verse 9 and look at it through verse 11 where he's talking about this fearful conversation that they had. And he said unto them, I'm a Hebrew. That's Jonah. He's talking to them. He said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. He's identifying who he is. He also, it's interesting that even in his backslidden condition, he's talking about God. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Sometimes backslidden people tell other people about it. They say, I know I'm out of God's will. And uh, evidently Jonah had told them that. Now he's coming up and confessing his sin and his wrongness. And so here these men were aware of this storm, and they are aware that it's God's judgment. 
because here's the man out of God's will, and God is judging him, and this terrible storm, which is impacting all of these people, is upon them. And they're thinking about the wrath of God, the judgment of Almighty God. Proverbs says in 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so sometimes it takes some drastic things and some difficult things to bring people to at that place of getting right with God. The thief on the cross had no problem getting right with God at that point because he recognized he was in a lot of trouble. And he spoke to his partner in crime and he said these words to him, Thus not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, we deserve it, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. He said, We're in trouble here, my friend, and we need some help. And he turned to the Lord. Now, unfortunately, the other one rejected the Lord, but he turned to the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Here's what we fear sometimes. We fear, number one, getting caught. People who are living in sin and out of God's will, they fear getting found out, getting caught. Or they fear the consequences of their sin. They always worry, what's going to happen to me because I have this sin in my life? But there's a greater fear that we need to be interested in. Matthew mentioned that in chapter 10, verse 28. And uh, we need to recognize that fear is a reverential awe for God in realizing who we are. And he said, Fear not them which kill the body. Don't be so afraid of those that can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If we want to fear God and fear something, we, we need to first of all deal with whether or not we're going to heaven or hell and fear God. And yet there are some people who have left that element out of their life. But the fear of God, the reverence for God, that's the beginning of wisdom, to fear the Lord like we should fear the Lord. I think Jonah should have remembered what Joshua had said if he had remembered those words, and here's what Joshua said in 24:14. Joshua said, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods, little g, which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Get rid of those things in your life that are wrong, those little gods, those little sins we call them, which are just things we bow down to rather than God. Get rid of those things and uh, serve the Lord with all of our heart. But Jonah hadn't done that. And uh, here he had brought all of this upon these people. Jonah evidently had still a little bit of conviction, but these other people were brought to the place where they feared God and they reacted accordingly. So there was a fatal conclusion involved in that, a fearful conversation. And then look at verse 12, a fatal conclusion. He said unto them, Take me up, cast me forth into the sea. Now that's quite a request. Think about it. Here he is in this smaller ship. It seems to have been a smaller one. And he's saying, Pick me up and throw me in the ocean. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake, because I'm a backslidden Christian, 
I'm out of God's will. For my sake, this great tempest is upon you. He said, it's my fault that the storm is here. And that was his conclusion. And what he said to them was, I'm out of God's will in essence, so take my life. Throw me overboard and get me out of the boat. You're suffering because of what I'm doing. Most of the time, we don't make any plans for the consequences of our sin. And Jonah probably had not either. Uh, we don't make plans for what's going to happen when we're out of God's will in any area of our lives. I remember a man that I had been witnessing to, and he had a little problem with alcohol. I'm sure when he took the first drink, he didn't realize where he would wind up in the situation he was in, but he was a truck driver, and coming home right near where he lived, he hit someone and killed them because he was drinking. Well, he really didn't have any plans for the consequences of his sin, and he had to face some very stiff consequences. And it's a fact that small compromises not necessarily big ones, but small compromises lead to great, great disaster in people's lives. A lot of Christians, they make a little compromise here and maybe a little one over here and then another one over here. And the next thing you know, they are facing very serious consequences because of doing that. And here's another thing when we are maybe a few steps away from God, our, the consequences we're facing impacts other people. When we sin, we never sin in a vacuum. There are no long ranger sinners. When we sin, it impacts other people around us. And here's a backslidden person out of God's will, and look what he's doing to the whole ship and all the men on the ship, all the people that are on that ship because he had stepped away from the will of God, other people were endangered as a result of that. And that's what happens. Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sinneth it shall die. And then he tells us in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, we have to be reminded, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, and you are very familiar with this verse, For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And then 1 John 5.16 says, There is a sin unto death. That's written to Christians. There's, there's something that a Christian can keep doing over and over and over and really never get it right and, and not even uh, confess it and turn from it uh, though they may have some back set sometimes, they just keep on doing it. They're not afraid of it. They don't care whether God likes it or not. They just hang on to that sin in their lives. There is a sin unto death. And God can take you home prematurely uh, and because there's a sin unto death. And that's almost what Jonah faced right here. He said, throw me out of the boat. I think he was saying just, I don't think he realize what God had for him there. He just said, I'm the problem. Throw me out of the boat and let me die. But there is a sin unto death. And then we have the, the sobering reverence and then the sobered reverence and then we have a sacrificial 
reconciliation. Verse 16, the latter part of that verse, the men feared the Lord exceeding, exceedingly, and notice what they did, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. They were afraid, and now there's sort of a revival going on, and they're turning to God because of the problems that they're facing, and they said, we want to offer a sacrifice unto God. Now go back up to verse 13 and look at their effort. This is, depicts the effort of man, verse 13. They're trying to work it out on their own. Nevertheless, the men rowing hard to bring it to the land, but they could not. The sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. They're trying to do it in their own strength. We're going to work this thing out in our own way, the effort of man. Verse 5, notice that they dumped everything out. The mariners were afraid. They cried every man unto his God. They were talking to their gods. And they cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea. They wanted to lighten it. And that was something that was customarily done in a storm. They knew the emergency plan was to do that. And so here they are, if you can get the picture, they're trying to work out, let's say, their own salvation, their own safety. They're doing everything they can, the effort of man, get rid of everything on the boat and uh, do these other things that are emergency measures to try to get it done. And that's what men do in, our, in life. They try to work out things themselves. And you've seen it and I see it all the time that they try to work it out themselves. Religion is their God. We talked... Uh, Brother Peoples and I talked to uh, one or two people yesterday that I would say that their religion is their God. They're trusting their religion to get them to heaven. They don't want to listen about Jesus and about how to be saved or take time to understand what the Bible says, but my religion's okay, I'm doing okay, don't bother me with the truth is basically what they're saying. They may not say it in those terms, but that's what they're saying. And then there are others that are trying to work it out, and they are turning over new leaves, and I'm trying harder, and I'm, I'm trying to do better, and uh, I, if I do good enough, then the Lord's going to accept me in. And a lot of times they go on down this pathway until finally some people come to the place where they understand the Lord is the last resort. And that's what they were doing. Work it out, get rid of this stuff, get rid of all the baggage, and... Uh, try to row to the shore, let's get there in safety. But that wasn't going to help them. They couldn't do it. And finally they come to that place where they feared the Lord, verse 16, and they began to offer sacrifice unto the Lord, and they made some vows unto the Lord. doesn't matter what we do. We cannot escape God's judgment of sin. It just doesn't matter. That's why we need a Savior. Romans 3, 27 and 28. Where's boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude, and this is so important, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. There are people trying to work their way into heaven. I talked to one lady yesterday. I said, do you know for sure if you died you'd go to heaven? She said, uh, yes, I do. I said, well... What if you stood before God? Why would you? What would you tell him? Is you're right? She said, "Oh, I, I, I'm a good person. I try to live good. I try to, to do the right thing." You know, everybody thinks they're not perfect, but they think they're okay and that they're going to get there. 
and she was she's thinking about the fact that she's a pretty good person. Um, I uh, had an issue with that because she had just told us she had just moved in with that man, but at any rate, uh, if that's being a good person, uh, they really missed it completely. But we, we don't go by works. It's not works of righteousness. Men could boast if we could do that. So it has to be what? Grace alone. That's it. We have to come to where we're at the end of our road and people you know and people that are your relatives and people you're praying for, that's what has to happen. They have to come to the end of their rope. They have to come to the place where they realize that they, it's grace alone that's going to save us. And so um, these people are just as unsaved. God's people cannot get through the storms of life when we compare what we deal with with what they deal with. They come to that place and they say, I come to the Lord. We, in our trials of life, putting it back into something practical for the believer, we have to also understand that the only way we're going to get through the trials of life and the problems we face is to depend on God. It's the only way we're going to do it. The only way you're going to get saved is come God's way, depend on Him, be saved by grace. And the only way we're going to get through troubles in this life is through the Lord. Second Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Do you realize that today, that your sufficiency comes from God? It's not you. It's not me. It's not our ability. It's not our greatness or our gifts or anything else. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do what? Nothing. Without God today, you can do nothing. You couldn't take your next breath if he didn't want you to. If he didn't allow you to. And so it's very clear, for without me you can do nothing. And God didn't say we are... We are uh, or could do something or a little bit of something without him. He says we really can't do anything without him, nothing without the Lord. And so we need to depend on him. And then we see the, elusive, uh, the elusiveness of what we would call mercy, of mercy. Verse 14, again, he says, Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. Now they had a dilemma here. What, what was the dilemma? Well, they were going to kill somebody, they thought. They didn't know there was going to be a great fish in, in the water when Jonah hit the water. And he said, Throw me overboard, kill me. And they are saying, Lord, this guy is out of your will. He knows it. And he's asking us to throw him overboard. Now that's between you and him. Don't hold it against us. That's what they were. That's what they were crying out for. They came to the end of, of themselves and said, "Lord, we need, we need your help. We don't want you to, we don't want you to judge us for this." They began to think more about judgment, more about God, more about their responsibility, and coming on God's terms. And the fact that they really didn't negotiate with God. There's only one way 
to be saved. Only one way to be right with God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's the formula for salvation. But then there's another formula, and that formula is the form, formula for revival. We always talk about we want revival. Most everybody in here, and I guess everybody in this room probably, is born again. We're saved. But we don't necessarily need so much, and I hope you do understand salvation. You had not depended on yourself. But we need a formula for revival. And just as there's no, uh, no way out of the formula for salvation, God gives us a formula for revival, and that's one way. And here it is. You're familiar with it. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name. That's a big if, isn't it? A little two-letter word if. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. We've got to humble ourselves. And that's what a lot of Christians don't want to do today. And pray. We have to pray. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to pray. Seek my face. Most of us, we're not careful, we're seeking our own will, but we must seek his face, turn from their wicked ways. And there's a big formula. We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek God's face, we turn from our wicked ways, we judge <clears throat> sin in our lives. Then will I hear from heaven. Only then. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's God's formula. If we meet it, God will give us revival. You say, well, I don't believe it will happen in America. It can. God says if we'll meet the formula, it would. But if it's not going to happen in America, let it happen in our church. If it isn't going to happen to the whole church, let it happen to a Sunday school class. If it isn't going to happen there, let it happen to me and you as an individual. If we meet the commands of God, demands of God, on it, we'll, we'll see that. So <clears throat> there was a sobered reverence and then a sacrificial reconciliation. And then they come to this place, back in verse 16, a surrendered resolve. The latter part of that verse, what did they do? They made vows. All of this, they tried to work it out their own way, uh, throwing everything out, roaring rowing to the shore, trying to get there, and they couldn't do it. They come to the place where they realize they're guilty and they're asking God for mercy. And then they come to this place where they feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice, and then they made vows. They began to make vows to God. And uh, somebody has said it this way. We say no at church and yes whenever we have a crisis. And that's what they had done. They probably didn't want much to do with God until they were in the middle of this crisis. And so it was a very serious moment. Uh, verse 15, they took up Jonah. They cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Can you imagine being on that boat and doing that? I don't know how they got him. Somebody by the foot, somebody up by the head, and just swung him back and forth two or three times and, and let him go threw him out, and there he goes off the side of the boat into the water, splash. And I imagine they were looking just to see what would happen. They probably figured immediately he would drown. And they probably didn't figure because of the storm and all that he was going to survive at all. 
and this was a very serious moment. And they they probably thought much about the fact or realized that they might be guilty of murder, and that was a serious crime. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. So murder would be wrong, and they were concerned about being guilty of murder. They threw him overboard, and they were doing what he asked, but still there was that responsibility. And so they made a vow. They made vows to God. I don't know exactly what all they vowed, but they made some kind of vows to God. You know, it's a serious thing when we think about it, when we think about those men. It's a serious thing when you make a vow to God. Did you know that? You make a promise to God, it's a serious thing. You can make a promise to me and break it, and that's not such a big deal, or to someone else you know. But the Christian life, listen, the Christian life is not a game. And too many times we treat it like it's a game. We make vows to God. We ought to be serious about those vows and those decisions. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. In other words, if you don't keep your vow, you're a fool, he says. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. You'd be better off not to promise God anything than to promise him and not fulfill your promise and do what you promised the Lord. And so we have to base our decisions on the Bible and on the Word of God, and then we make our decisions based on the Bible. We make our vows, and we should keep our vows. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, Second Peter 2.21. And then we see a supernatural miracle. We'll drop down to verse 7, 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish. We say a whale. It was a great fish. Uh, it could have been like a whale, but the Lord had prepared a great fish. God prepared this one. He's in control of all of that to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I believe that. You say, well, it's just not possible. Well, it is possible, and it happened, because the Bible says it happened. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, I could imagine what, what they experienced and what those men saw. Have you ever been at SeaWorld? How many of you have been to SeaWorld? Did you ever make the mistake of sitting close to the front at the early part of it, and all of a sudden this killer whale comes up out of the water and splashes it, and you're just, you can't believe what takes place right then. You say, man, I wish I'd have sat further back. And then the next time you go, you send your friends down there, right? So they can experience that. But they, that's sort of what they must have seen, whoever might have been looking overboard. I imagine a lot of them were looking overboard just to see what had happened. And, and evidently, they had the privilege of seeing God's miracle, seeing this whale, not a killer whale, but this fish God had prepared swallowed up Jonah. And... Uh, Evidently, they possibly saw this. So in verse 16, he says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered unto him the sacrifice and made vows. Maybe that had something to do with it. In Romans 2, 4, uh, 
we, we have to think about, do we wait for a storm to get right with God? Do we have to? The answer to that is no. We don't have to wait till there's a storm or sickness or financial reversal or bad health or some other things that come in our life, family problems and all of that. We don't have to wait for that or a fish. But the Bible says in Romans 2, 4, he says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. When we know the goodness of God, it ought to make us repent of our sin. Jonah should have already repented, but he didn't. That's why he had to have this bad experience he had. You say, well, that was a pretty cool experience. I guarantee you he didn't think so when he was in the belly of the whale. And uh, he, he would have rather gone a, a different route and to have what happened to him. But here's the, here's the final thought. It's easier to make decisions on dry land than it is in the belly of a whale. Amen? And, and if we don't make the right decisions on good circumstances, we're going to have the bad circumstances. The problem with all that is it leaves some scars and some difficulties and some things in our life that, uh, that we can't get over and it affects other people. But God prepared a way of escape for him. He was merciful to him, and he always is to us. And God used it in spite of this backslidden person. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, it's an intriguing story to think about Jonah. We know that no doubt he was miserable, he was fearful, he knew that he was out of your will, he told those people that. And then the experience he had when they threw him overboard, no doubt, was horrible and frightening, and he probably thought he was fixing to die and face you, but you were merciful and gracious. Lord, help us to make the right decisions and to repent of our sins before we have to pay a price for it. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.